Good morning, everybody. Good morning, and welcome to the Cato Institute's F.A. Hayek Auditorium. My name is Dan Eikenson. I am chair uh, <coughs> of Cato's uh, Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies, and I'll be your moderator today uh, for our event uh, titled The WTO and the Uncertain Future of Multilateralism. Uh, at the outset, let me just mention that uh, this event is being recorded, uh, live-streamed, and a recording will be available uh, tomorrow in the archives file, as will certain documents that were available out on the desk and some that, some that were not. Uh, also, uh, we are inviting people watching over the internet to, as well as people in this audience, to, uh, to tweet about the event. Uh, we want to carry on a conversation. If you want to uh, make a comment or ask a question, use the hashtag at Cato WTO, <coughs> number sign Cato WTO, lowercase is fine. If you have a specific question, which we may or may not be able to address uh, here and now live, uh, send it to at Cato Trade on Twitter, please. Well, we've convened a panel here of some of the world's foremost experts on the topic. We have the former Director General of the WTO and Ambassador Mike Moore. Uh, we have a former WTO appellate body judge right here and Ambassador uh, Jennifer Hillman. And we have a dedicated scholar and professor of trade policy, uh, Craig Van Grastek, who has just published uh, an extensive, comprehensive history of, of the history of the WTO, uh, the title of which is The History and Future of the World Trade Organization, which is sort of similar to the title of this event. Uh, the original impetus for this event was going to be a book forum, uh, but we thought it might make, make sense to broaden it and have a sort of a, a discussion that goes beyond uh, the confines of the book. It's an excellent book. I mean, you think about technical books uh, and kind of go, eh. But th this is really written very well. Prose are excellent. It almost reads like something that would be uh, uh, an assignment given to you by your uh, English lit professor. So it's very colorful uh, adjectives, colorful prose. Um, I think you're going to find that these panelists have some serious concerns about the future of the WTO and about multilateralism, but I think they also have some reasons for optimism, and they're going to share some of their ideas, some things to consider. I just want to take a couple of minutes to set the table uh, for the discussion. For example, why is this topical? Well, most of you are probably familiar with the background, but I want to touch upon a few events uh, and developments. You know, it's been 19 years uh, since the last round of multilateral trade negotiations resulted in a successful conclusion. The Uruguay round was concluded in uh, 1994. It was a very successful round. It achieved broader and deeper liberalization uh, than the previous rounds had. Uh, it also created the World Trade Organization, which took effect on July 1st, uh, on January 1st, 1995. Um, since the founding of the WTO, there have been no new comprehensive multilateral trade negotiations. Uh, meanwhile, I mean, conclusion of any uh, negotiations. Meanwhile, there have been uh, two, about 216 preferential trade agreements non-multilateral, uh, that have gone into effect since 1995. Pre preferential agreements were, were, were gaining in popularity in the 90s, but they weren't all that prominent, and they weren't really seen so much as a threat to the multilateral system. Since 2000, there's been a, a, a major uptick in the conclusion of, of, of these, these preferential bilateral and regional agreements. And one of the reasons for the appeal, I think, if not the most important reason, uh, is perceptions that progress on issues that were important to certain demandors in the multilateral uh, rounds 
was was inhibited, and there were, or at least there were perceptions that that that, that they were uh, inhibited uh, in the, in that context. In, in 1996, at the Singapore Ministerial, a slew of issues that were sort of new to trade negotiations were were discussed, uh, including you know, labor and environmental issues, uh, competition policy, uh, trade facilitation, uh, investment uh, issues, uh, and government procurement. And some of these issues kind of uh, divided along north-south lines. Uh, and it, it appeared that the WTO wasn't, at, at least at that time, the right forum in which to advance uh, liberalization in those areas. Uh, meanwhile, in the late 90s, the U.S. was experiencing its, what The Economist newspaper calls uh, its holiday from history. Uh, the economy was growing, and there wasn't as much interest in, in, in trade liberalization after the, 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 uh, the, the WTO had been formed. Um, Congress failed to reauthorize fast-track negotiating authority for President Clinton. Then in 1999, uh, we had the emergence of what became known as the anti-globalization movement in Seattle, the Battle of Seattle, uh, where the ministerial was essentially shut down. Uh, and the pieces weren't really picked up until the Doha round was launched in the wake of, of 9-11 in 2001. Um, and it never really had a very... There, wasn't a, there was promise at the outset, but it ran into obstacles very quickly. The Cancun ministerial in September 2003, the negotiations basically broke down, uh, sort of along north-south lines. Um, and to my mind, the Doha round died there and then uh, in 2003. The, the jubilation on the faces of some of the delegations, developing country delegations, drove home to me the point that this wasn't about achieving trade liberalization. This was about, for some countries, being seen standing up to the U.S. And the, and the European yep. Union, uh, and we've been grappling with uh, trying to pick up the pieces ever since uh, without any real success. Um, shortly after uh, the Cancun uh, breakdown, then USTR Robert Zellick sort of announced this policy of competitive liberalization, the idea being that, you know, the United States has options. We don't just uh, have to think about negotiating in the multilateral context. Let's, uh, let's show the world that there are options. And uh, so there was focus on what at the time was a fairly prominent idea of this free trade area of the Americas. Maybe we'll focus there and show Europe and New Zealand and uh, Asia that we have alternatives. But, but the things that Brazil wanted from the FTAA uh, were similar to the things that they wanted in the WTO that, that where the U.S. was playing defense, things like agriculture and anti-dumping policy. So anyway, that FTAA didn't really go anywhere. So little bilaterals were, were, were sort of picked off, Chile, Central America, uh, Colombia. But as it turns out, what competitive liberalization did, I think, was spawn uh, com a competition and liberalization through these preferential agreements. Uh, Europe, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Korea, India, other countries started pursuing these agreements. Uh, and have actually concluded more than, than many of them have concluded more than has the United States. So uh, now we have the situation where multilateralism is stalled. Uh, hopefully it's just stalled. Um, and we have these alternative arrangements. Meanwhile, the, the WTO's adjudicative function has worked well, and it continues to work well. There have been some uh, 463, maybe 464 disputes that have uh, and been initiated at the WTO. I think it's helped to keep the lid on uh, protectionism. It certainly helped uh, quell 
some unilateral instincts that governments have had, including our own. If you recall the, the Schumer-Graham bill of a, you know, the past decade, it came up a few times. You know, members of Congress, senators started saying, well, can we do this? Is it WTO legal? And I think that that has been useful in that regard, and I think it's something we really need to think about preserving. Um, so right now, uh, there are a few different schools of thought on this question, and I think the most prominent ones are this. Uh, preferential agreements and the multilateral system can coexist. Uh, preferential agreements will cause the WTO to fall into irrelevance and obscurity. And third, the WTO will evolve by adopting sort of the best practices and provisions from these various bilateral and regional agreements and bring them under one roof. So in a sense, these preferential bilateral and regional agreements are sort of like petri dishes of experimentation, uh, sort of like a federalist system where we can try to pick and choose uh, what what provisions might work. It sounds good, uh, but I think it's uh, uh, much easier (laughs) said uh, than done. But But I hope something like that can, can happen. So let's hear what the panel has to say about these issues. Uh, some of the prominent ones, some of the prominent challenges, I think, to the multilateral system really right now uh, are the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership negotiations, which are uh, reported to be approaching a conclusion, uh, the TTIP negotiations, which are just starting. Uh, so it's really pushing to the fore this, this question of coexistence and what happens to the WTO. So uh, we're going to start with uh, uh, Craig Van Grastek. He's going to be our first speaker. Craig is an adjunct uh, lecturer in public policy at the uh, Harvard Kennedy School and a trade policy consultant. His firm, Washington Trade Report, uh, specializes in monitoring and analyzing current issues in trade policy. Uh, my colleagues and I subscribe to his weekly uh, analysis, his weekly survey, you have uh, about seven pages of them, uh, of his most recent analysis. At least it was available out on the, on the table. But it's a really, really sharp analysis. It's, 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 it's very well done, sophisticated stuff. Um, so sometimes instead of doing my own analysis, I just kind of point to what Craig has done and say, this. So uh, Craig has worked as a consultant in uh, nearly four dozen countries on five continents. He has expertise in the fields of trade negotiations, preferences, and free trade agreements. WTO accessions, dispute settlement, trade and services, uh, and, trade, and the trade policy-making process of the United States. His clients include the WTO, the OECD, UNCTAD, the World Bank, uh, and other international organizations, as well as government agencies and private firms. Craig holds a, 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 a doctorate in political science from Princeton. He has a Master of Science in Foreign Service from Georgetown. Uh, he has taught trade policy at Harvard uh, American University and also teaches an innovative course uh, at Georgetown University on foreign policy and and literature. He's written a couple of books. Most recently, this one I alluded to earlier, The History and Future of the WTO. Uh, Again, excellent book. Look it up. You don't have to buy the whole book, as it turns out. You can go online and and read it chapter for chapter. (laughs) Sorry to undermine him like that. Um, So anyway, please. I I, I don't get royalties. (laughs) Oh, say that. Please help me welcome uh, Craig Van Grasta to the podium. Or if you want to speak from there, you can do that as well. Easier here. Okay. Craig's going to speak from his seat. Okay. Thanks. Well. Thank you. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just stay at the seat here. Uh, I am going to try to give a historical um, perspective on the issue and, and, and try to derive uh, what I think are some of the lessons from the history of how we got the WTO uh, and the differences between the GATT system and the WTO system. Again, this is, this is the book to which uh, Dan refers. There will, by the way, be a formal launch 
of this book at the American University Law School on October 16th, to which everyone is invited. But instead of trying to summarize what's in the book, um, the two themes that are relevant to today's topic that I would like to to address are, first of all, those differences, as I say, between the, the GATT and the WTO system, which is another way of saying the differences between the Uruguay round and the Doha round, uh, and what is the relationship between discriminatory agreements and multilateralism, which has been a recurring theme as long as we've had a multilateral system. And the multilateral system has always allowed for the negotiation of free trade agreements and customs unions. But uh, the argument that, that I want to present is, unlike the usual view that you can look at history and that'll give us a perspective on where we are today, we have to think here about the differences, the distinctions. And the argument I make is that if you think about RTAs, regional trade arrangements, of which FTAs, free trade agreements, are the most important part, if you think about them in the structure that my Harvard colleague Robert Lawrence gives, uh, which is the choice of whether they form building blocks or stumbling blocks for the multilateral system. And he first came up with this, this structure in the early 1990s. At that time, uh, Robert Lawrence is one of the optimists who view them as building blocks. And I think that was appropriate at the time. But uh, over time and in the new system that we have today, for reasons that I will try to lay out, I think the stumbling block characteristic of RTAs has become much more prominent. Uh, I do make this argument in the Washington Trade Report essay that, that you have, and I will make some reference here to the, to the data, but I thought it would, it would be better in, our, um, in this environment just to, uh, just to speak and not make a PowerPoint. But I'll make reference to some of the graphs that are, that are in that essay. Well, Dan spoke about uh, the Petri dishes that RTAs can be, which is a somewhat different uh, metaphor, but I think the same sort of idea. Uh, of building blocks. In, in each case, the, the notion being that, that RTAs can be policy laboratories. And if you want to make the best argument for how RTAs can contribute to the multilateral system, you point to what they were able to help accomplish in the Uruguay round in expanding the issue scope of the multilateral system. And the competitive liberalization strategy to which Dan refers, which we certainly associate uh, with uh, Robert Zellick when he was USTR, actually dates back a little bit earlier uh, to what the United States was trying to do in the 1980s. We didn't call it competitive liberalization at the time, uh, but Jim Baker, who was Secretary of the Treasury and closely associated with Robert Zellick, was treating the negotiation of FTAs at that time in this way as a form of building block. And the objectives of the United States in the 1980s, in the late GATT period, in entering into the Uruguay round, were not just to deepen liberalization as we had it on the traditional issues of tariffs and uh, other border measures, but to expand the system into new areas like services, intellectual property rights, and investment. And the way that the United States tried to advance the issues at the time was by threatening to negotiate uh, more bilateral agreements. Now, the bilateral agreements are both a promise and a threat, in a sense. It was a promise to, to provide precedence for the negotiation of agreements on these new issues. But it was also a threat in the sense that if the other countries were not willing to take up these issues in the Uruguay round, uh, the United States would instead pick up its ball and its bat and go home and, and play only with, uh, with the kids who were willing to do so. And Canada was the first important kid 
that was willing to play with the United States on these issues, and that it's no coincidence that the U.S.-Canada FTA negotiations begin right at the point where the Uruguay Round is being launched. That was part of the U.S. strategy to overcome the opposition of developing countries to the introduction of these new issues uh, to the system. It's no coincidence that NAFTA was negotiated at the end of the Uruguay Round system. This was providing uh, a demonstration effect of how these same new issues could be dealt with in negotiations between industrialized and developing countries. And, and really, I think the competitive liberalization strategy, as it was practiced uh, in the Uruguay Round, was very successful. And it managed to achieve, uh, ha- at least helped to contribute to the achievement of the Uruguay Round as being the most successful of the negotiations that were conducted within the GATT system, and one that in fact gave rise to the WTO, which was not uh, a U.S. proposal. It was initially a Canadian proposal. Uh, But having achieved that success in the Uruguay round, uh, this then became a central part of the U.S. strategy in the Doha round, uh, competitive liberalization. The idea, again, being that, that if we can have a combination of discriminatory and multilateral agreements, uh, we can have sort of stepping stones or, or these building blocks of progress from the smaller to the larger unit. And unfortunately, the competitive liberalization strategy really has not worked. And I think there's a number of reasons uh, why that has been the case. Uh, there were uh, not only the bilateral FTAs with which the United States engaged post-NAFTA, but also the regional, the free trade area of the Americas negotiations, to which Dan referred, also the APEC negotiations in the Asia-Pacific area. Both of those have broken up and fragmented into bilateral and sub-regional negotiations. And if your only objective is to uh, advance market liberalization, if your only objective is to achieve through whatever means necessary the reduction in trade barriers, you could say this has been a successful strategy. But if, in addition to liberalization, you want to reduce the level of discrimination, it's been a perversely unsuccessful strategy because we have a more uh, uh, deeply, broadly distributed discrimination today than at any time in the past. So what accounts for the differences between uh, the success of competitive liberalization in the Uruguay round versus where we are in the Doha round? Uh, I would attribute it primarily to three factors. And I would say that the multilateral system, in a way, has been a victim of its own success. What we were trying to achieve uh, in the Uruguay round was a broadening and a deepening of the system, bringing more countries in, uh, bringing in countries that either had already been contracting parties of the GATT but were not effectively negotiating, which was the case for a great many developing countries that... uh, Uh, that did not want to uh, undertake commitments, and also bring in other countries that had been outside the system. And this is part of uh, the consequence of the end of the Cold War, bringing in a lot of countries that had been non-market economies into the system. And the the accession last year of the Russian Federation was, was almost the final achievement of that process. We have gone from a system in which a small number of countries negotiated among themselves, and the GATT was primarily about the agreements that were reached on a north-north basis with the developing countries that were in the system not very effectively participating, to the WTO being a near-universal organization in which virtually every country in the world, leaving aside North Korea and a few others, 
is either a member of the WTO or actively negotiating for its succession. But that brings with it two other problems. One is that the WTO is an institution where the decision-making process is on the basis of consensus, and consensus was relatively easy to achieve. It may not have seemed so at the time, but it was relatively easy to achieve when the necessary and sufficient condition for concluding any negotiation was to get the United States and the European Union to agree with one another. And if that happened, then everything else would fall into place. We still may have thought that was the case as late as Cancun, but as Dan referred to the, the jubilation of developing countries uh, that saw the, the breakdown of those negotiations demonstrates, by the time we had reached Cancun in 2003, it was quite evident that it was still a necessary but not a sufficient condition for the United States and the European Union to be in agreement. So one of the reasons why we have a more difficult system is the relative decline of this transatlantic partnership and its, its level of influence, the growth of the system, bringing in many more countries that do not necessarily share fundamentally uh, the same values, and the imperfect burden sharing on the part of the BRICS uh, within the WTO system, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, uh, in, a, in a, a system where these countries account for ever larger shares of global trade, but we have a fundamental disagreement as to how we will distribute the burden sharing of the commitments that they will make, uh, that's a fundamental problem. So that and the near universal nature and the wider range of issues becomes a problem. What was a success in the Uruguay round, which was bringing in these new issues of services, intellectual property rights, and investment, and seemed to be a contributing factor to the success of the negotiation itself, the, the notion being that the more issues that you have on the table, the easier it is to make trade-offs across them, has become in the environment of the WTO a real hindrance because we have the rule of the single undertaking now. And the single undertaking in the WTO requires that all of the countries that are members of the organization sign on to all of the agreements. And if you combine that with a very wide range of issues and an environment in which countries have a greater reluctance, a greater emphasis upon their defensive rather than their offensive interests, that apparent success of the Uruguay round, and I'd say more than apparent, that real success of the Uruguay round, becomes one of the sources of failure of the Doha round, because getting to yes is so much more difficult. So what role do FTAs, or RTAs more generally, play in this environment? Well, the argument that I make here is uh, they worsen the problem, in part because the sheer numbers of them are overwhelming. At the time of the Uruguay round, when the United States was able effectively to leverage first the US-Canada FTA and then NAFTA, to the achievement of, of uh, a rather deep and successful round, they were still very much the exception. Today, they're more like the rule, and not a single member of the WTO uh, is relying solely on multilateral liberalization. It used to be the case that, that we would sometimes say every country in the WTO except Mongolia is negotiating FTAs. I can tell you I was hired two years ago to go to Mongolia and teach them how to negotiate FTAs which they're starting out by negotiating one with Japan. So FTAs, just in the sheer number, are problematic. There's two other problems. One is the problem of the North-South FTAs. 
It may be the case that if the United States negotiates an FTA with a developing country from the U.S. perspective, it's part of a strategy of competitive liberalization. But from the perspective of many of the developing countries that we negotiate with, I say many because there are exceptions. There's the Singapores and Costa Ricas and Chiles of this world. But there are many other countries that view FTAs not as stepping stones to a broader multilateral system, but as an opportunity to lock in preferential access. And from their perspective, if you have that preferential access, multilateral liberalization is not an opportunity, it's a threat. And so on the part, one of the reasons why some of these countries in Cancun uh, were, were uh, in jubilation uh, at the breakdown of those negotiations, it meant that their margins of preference were not going to be shrunk. Beyond the north-south problem, there's a north-north problem. And it used to be that the main industrialized countries negotiated FTAs with developing countries and with the mid-level industrialized countries, but not with one another. There was a glass ceiling that we did not break. So you didn't have U.S.-Japan negotiations. You did not have U.S.-EU negotiations. But as everyone in the room knows, today we do. And the question arises that if we have broken that glass ceiling in part out of frustration of, of the stalling of the Doha round, what are we going to do about the legislative function of the WTO? What is the WTO for anymore? Because we used to, among the major industrialized countries, keep our powder dry and negotiate only among the smaller partners, and the threshold level was Canada and Korea. We've gone beyond Canada and Korea with TPP and TTIP. So those being the problems, let me just very briefly say a few things about, about what I think the consequences are before uh, I turn back the floor. <clears throat> One is that we have a system where, unlike in the Uruguay round, where issues got kicked up from the bilaterals to the multilateral, so we went from U.S.-Canada FTA and then a, a regional, uh, NAFTA, developing new issues and bringing them to GATT, we now retreat to FTAs when we can't get our issues advanced in the WTO. So the EU was the main demandeur on the Singapore issues in the WTO, uh, competition policy, government procurement, um, trade facilitation, and, and investment. Sorry, <laughs> I sometimes forget the full list. Three of those four issues were taken off the table uh, in part as a consequence of what happened in Cancun. Also, other issues that the EU had hoped to advance, labor rights, the environment, never got on the agenda in the Doha round. So instead of negotiating on these issues at the WTO level, they instead become what we negotiate on in our FTAs. And our FTAs become more and more not like miniature versions of what we want to negotiate at a higher level in the WTO, but qualitatively different agreements that have a different range of, of issues in them, especially those issues that we were not able to get consensus on their negotiation uh, in the WTO. That's a problem. There's also the issue that doesn't get covered. The only place that we could negotiate a substantive agreement on disciplining agricultural subsidies would be in the WTO. We can't do it in bilateral and regional negotiations, and we're not doing it in bilateral and regional negotiations. And then a final consequence, and I, I think the point I'll make here will lead into uh, in the comments of the next speaker, is we're in danger of taking a WTO in which we hope there would be equally strong legislative, executive, and judicial functions to one in which the 
the legislative function is inoperative, uh, the judicial function seems to be much stronger, and we are left with a system that is primarily about implementing and enforcing the agreements reached in the past rather than negotiating new agreements. And from a multilateralist point of view, uh, that's very problematic. Craig. Uh, our next speaker is going to be um, Jennifer Hillman. Uh, Jennifer is currently a, a partner in the firm of Cassidy, Levy, and Kent. Uh, she's also a fellow and adjunct professor of law at, at, at Georgetown University's Law Center's Institute of International Economic Law. Uh, her work focuses on the WTO dispute settlement system, uh, the WTO agreements related to trade remedies, uh, and WTO jurisprudence related to trade uh, related to trade remedies as well. From 2007 uh, to 2011, uh, Jennifer served as one of the seven members of the WTO appellate body, uh, as one of the appellate body judges, uh, which is the, the appellate body's the final adjudicator uh, of international trade disputes in, in the WTO system. Uh, from, two from 1998 to 2007, uh, Hillman served as commissioner at the U.S. International Trade Commission. Uh, from 1995 to 97, she served as general counsel at the USTR, uh, where she was responsible for a variety of trade matters, including all government submissions and dispute settlement cases before the WTO and NAFTA uh, panels, uh, as well as all legal work done in connection with trade negotiations. Prior to that, Hillman was a chief textile negotiator uh, with the rank of ambassador for the USTR, uh, where her responsibilities included negotiating bilateral textile agreements with 38 countries uh, in 1993 and 1994. Uh, Jennifer Hillman is also, has also served as a legislative director and counsel to U.S. Senator Terry Sanford of North Carolina, where she was responsible for international trade, banking, securities, and finance issues. Uh, she began her professional career as an international trade attorney in the Washington firm of Patton Boggs. Uh, she has a BA and a Master of Education from Duke, North Carolina, and a Juris, doc uh, and a Juris Doctor degree from Harvard. So, uh, do you want to speak up here, Jennifer? Um, I may follow Craig's lead, and, and if it's all right, uh, stay, stay okay. here if that's okay. Uh, please help me welcome okay. Jennifer Okay. Thank you. No, it's a tremendous pleasure for me to be here. And I think if I can, I'm going to just pick right up from where from where um, Craig left off, because I'd like to focus a little bit on um, what I think the troubles with multilateralism um, mean, in particular for the WTO's uh, dispute settlement system, and to offer my own thoughts on, on what the WTO can do to address um, the problems that I think it faces. Um, I myself have always thought of the WTO as a bit of a three-legged stool, uh, with one leg being the negotiating, if you will, rulemaking part of the House, um, and the secretariat or the executive part of it being the second leg, um, and the dispute settlement uh, leg uh, being the third. Um, right now, I think it's very clear that this proverbial stool is listing uh, very heavily um, to one side, um, as the dispute settlement leg, while far from perfect, is currently very strong, uh, some would even say too strong, um, and the secretariat and, if you will, the governance process of the WTO is small, I would say, but doing fairly well um, in terms of running the processes, taking in and making available hundreds of filings and schedules, keeping everything from the trade policy review mechanism up and running so that countries really do have the chance to examine each other's trading systems and in detail and ask each other and register questions and concerns to monitoring regional trade agreements, to conducting really, I think, first-rate um, economic and other research. So I think the WTO as an institution, its executive function, if you will, um, has been able to accomplish 
a fairly extraordinary number of things, given particularly its very small size compared to other multilateral organizations. I mean, if you think about it, the WTO has about 650 employees compared to the 9,000 employees at the World Bank or the 3,500 employees at the International Labor Organization or the 2,670 at the International Monetary Fund. So this limited staff, I think, really has been able to do an extraordinary amount, at least at bringing about transparency and implementation of the agreements that have been agreed upon to date. Um, it is really the third leg, um, the negotiating and rulemaking part of the House that is not functioning. Um, and that's what's leaving the system seriously out of balance. I mean, if you think about it with only very minor changes related to intellectual property and pharmaceuticals, there have been no changes to the basic rules of the WTO um, in the nearly 20 years um, since those rules were drafted, despite the fact that in those 20 years there have been tremendous changes in trade flows, in the growth of supply chains, in the types of trade barriers um, that ha are having the greatest impact on trade. So everything else has changed about trade except for the rules. Um, so why has this negotiating rulemaking part of the House struggled so much? Um, I don't think, I think uh, Craig has given us a very good sense within, within the Doha round specifically, so I, I don't intend to go back over those. But I would, I would say that there's also some sort of larger, more systemic issues that have, that have contributed to it, three that I would note. I mean, one is the tremendous shift in just what countries are really trading and how many countries are trading. I mean, in the last 10 years, we've seen China rise to become the number one exporter in the world. Um, and at the same time, we've seen developing countries now become more than half of the world's economic activity and more than half of global exports. So just the sheer number of players that are actively engaged in the trading system um, has made it a much more complicated system. While the negotiating process is still stuck in the notion that there is this clear divide between developed and developing, and all negotiations are going to be between these two camps, even though that is a division that clearly no longer reflects um, the realities of today's world. Secondly, I think it's been made more complicated by the fact that we're no, no longer negotiating principally over tariffs. Rather, a lot of the negotiations are over reducing non-tariff barriers, which are much more complex and require a much harder task at parsing through the ability to limit the negative effects of trade barriers with the positive effects of countries that wish to regulate in areas connected to the environment or the protection of consumers or others. And getting that balance right about what is protecting, what is protectionism versus what is genuine um, efforts to protect consumers or the environment is a very tricky business. And I would say third, I think the climate for trade negotiations has become more hostile um, as domestic trade politics have become more difficult. And that is not just in the United States, but it's around the world. Um, and it's in part as a result uh, of the economic crisis and of the growth in unemployment that has come with that economic crisis. I don't think many of these things can be laid at the feet of the WTO, but it's clear that failure to reach any new agreements or to move to a process in which major changes to the WTO agreements can be made has left this stool strongly tipped um, to one side. Um, I think the implications from, from this lack of balance are many, but I'm going to focus a little bit for what they mean for the dispute settlement system. 
Before I do that, I think it's important to put the WTO's dispute settlement system into some context, because I do think it's important to understand how heavily utilized the system has been, uh, particularly compared with virtually all other international courts. Um, the DSU saw two weeks ago the filing of the 467th request uh, for consultations to resolve a dispute since the WTO's founding in 1995, which means nearly 25 cases per year um, over the 18-plus years of the WTO's dispute settlement system's existence. Over the years, we've seen almost 195 panels be constituted, 180 panel reports be issued, and 108 appellate body reports, meaning appeals, um, where there have been re reports issued um, on an appeal. Contrast those numbers, for example, to the tribunal to resolve uh, matters of dispute over things that occur in the sea. Um, the ICLOS tribunal was created almost one year to the day uh, from the time the WTO dispute settlement system was created. And so it's going to govern everything from disputes over mineral rights and mining under the seabed to everything connected to vessels and piracy, et cetera. Um, that ICLOS tribunal is currently taking up its 20th case um, in the same amount of time that the WTO is looking at 467th. Or look at the International Court of Justice. Uh, again, the United, you know, overall, theoretically, the World Court, which has seen in this same 18-year period 42 contentious cases um, initiated in that same period. So the DSU system has been busy. Uh, which presumably reflects the confidence uh, that the WTO members have in the system's ability to resolve their disputes fairly and with reasonable efficiency. The problem is what the lack of an efficient or effective negotiating or rulemaking arm may do over the long haul to the system. In fact, one of the most remarkable things about the DSU is the high degree of compliance uh, with the rulings that are handed down. Now, compliance is a little bit hard to measure, but I think most scholars would give you a sense that somewhere between 80 and 90 percent uh, of the decisions of the WTO's dispute settlement system are or are being um, complied with. Um, certainly in more than 90 percent of the cases, the country that loses says in Geneva in front of the dispute settlement body, we intend to come into compliance. Um, and if you look at the number of cases in which everybody agrees compliance has not occurred um, and that what has to happen at the end of the day is retaliation, has to be authorized, that's happened in 17 out of these 467 cases. So less than 3.6% of the cases have ultimately resulted in the authorization for retaliation. So if you step back at it and think, okay, so why? Why do countries comply with a ruling of the WTO when they lose? Uh, my own view is a number of reasons are possible. I think first and foremost, it's economic. Um, basically, countries want compliance from others when they win. Um, and they know they're not likely to get it if they don't comply themselves. Secondly, I do think there is fundamentally broad support for a rules-based system. And countries do feel, whether you call it moral or otherwise, some need to support the notion of a basic belief in a rule of law system. And therefore, the need for them to comply with the rule of law. But third, and I would not understate this, is that countries are involved or have been involved in ongoing negotiations with the same countries that they face in disputes. And they know that reaching agreements in, across a negotiating table is only going to be made much harder um, if they are refusing to comply um, with dispute settlement rulings on the other side of the table. So I do think the negotiations play a very important role in the incentive that countries have to comply. 
Fourth, I think there is clearly a court of shame, if you will, that goes on. You can watch as every month uh, the members file in for DSB meetings and everyone says, you ex country, typically the United States, um, have not come into compliance with the following rulings. And the United States can only say the dog ate my homework uh, so many times before there gets to be a growing pressure um, to finally do something about coming into compliance with, with adverse rulings. And fifth is trade sanctions. Um, now, many in other quarters and in other in other policy arenas would say that it's the ability to impose trade sanctions, retaliate, um, that is the linchpin. But my own view is that's not so clear, uh, particularly because a lot of the uh, compliance amounts are minuscule in comparison um, uh, to what if, if, to the size of the U.S. economy or the trade that's in effect. So I think it's actually more the former uh, provisions that brings about compliance. The problem is that most of these reasons for compliance are going to fade away um, if the negotiation leg of the WTO is not functioning and strong. To me, a second aspect of this lack of a negotiating rulemaking arm is the effect on the decisions themselves. I know from my own days at the appellate body that there is a reticence on the part of the appellate body members to push the jurisprudence too far because you know that there is little chance for the members to adopt new rules or to overrule a decision that the appellate body has made if the members think you've gotten it wrong. It is not like sitting in a court in the United States where you know that if you make a decision that is fundamentally perceived to be in error, um, that the legislature, the Congress will um, overrule you in some fashion. That is not perceived to be an option um, in the WTO system. So failure to change and an inability to change the rules, I think, contributes to this notion that the judiciary needs to be very conservative. And on the other hand, there is a clear recognition in the system from members who believe that their rights have been nullified, that this is the only game in town. This is the only place they can go um, to get a change, to get their matters adjudicated. And therefore, the system is pushing in the opposite direction, to don't be conservative. Please go ahead and render a decision, even if the laws or the rules are vague or even almost non-existent. The pressure is heavy um, to go ahead and resolve the dispute as best you can um, given that there is no rulemaking body standing behind you. A third element of the dispute settlement system that I think is, is going to be in trouble as we go forward if there isn't a multilateral agenda is this connection um, to all of these regional trade agreements that Craig talked about. Virtually every single one of these regional trade agreements or preferential agreements that has been negotiated has its own dispute settlement mechanism um, where disputes can be brought to some form of a body or an adjudicatory system under each one of these mechanisms, which raises a plethora of questions about what to do when one dispute could go either to a preferential trade agreement forum or to the WTO or to both. What do you do when they're in conflict? What do you do if a party is using a regional trade agreement uh, dispute settlement mechanism to try to create leverage within <clears throat> the WTO or vice versa? Um, I will say to date, these problems have risen only rarely. And why is because there is a tremendous general preference right now to take all trade disputes to the WTO. I mean, if you think about the NAFTA, for example, fairly well-developed uh, dispute settlement system, I think a fairly good confidence between the United States, Mexico, and Canada 
that they can run a dispute settlement mechanism. They have perfectly good, well-trained lawyers to do this. And yet, of all the disputes that could have gone um, to what is referred to as NAFTA's Chapter 20 dispute settlement mechanism, three have gone there. In fact, the disputes between the United States and Canada go to the WTO. The fights between the United States and Mexico go to the WTO. The fights between Canada and Mexico go to the WTO. A tremendous similar situation in the Mercosur. Argentina and Uruguay don't typically fight in the Mercosur. They fight in Geneva. So there is a huge preference to use the WTO system over the regional trade agreements. Why, I would say, A, the WTO has now a large body of cases with appellate review that offer greater clarity and certainty about WTO obligations, and they may suggest sort of more overall comfort with a more judicial and perhaps less diplomatic model of dispute settlement. Secondly, I think within the WTO, there's much greater predictability in the outcome. I think a lot of countries are very worried that they don't know what they'll get um, if they take a dispute to their own regional um, regional uh, dispute settlement mechanism. Third, uh, a WTO panel process cannot be blocked, uh, which is not always the case in some of the other regional trade agreements dispute settlement systems. The panelists are neutrals. They're not a party from any of the countries of the dispute, which is, again, not the case with most of the regional trade disputes. In, in a NAFTA fight, you're going to have U.S., Mexican, or Canadian panelists. Um, in a dispute between the United States and Canada, there will be no Americans or no Canadians on the panel. So it's a, it's a different system that I think some are, are more comfortable with. Um, fourth, I think a lot of people are more comfortable with the stabilizing effect that the WTO institutions, including this naming and shaming of the dispute settlement body, have as a way of policing um, the overall dispute settlement mechanism and keeping an eye on the implementation with decisions that are made. Um, and obviously you have a lot of post-judgment um, compliance obligations and treaties within the WTO that you wouldn't have in a regional trade mechanism. So at the end of this, what can the WTO do in the face of all of these pressures? I mean, this tremendous growth in the number of regional trade agreements with their own dispute settlement mechanisms, with the increasing difficulty and complexity involved in reaching agreements. My sense is I think the WTO needs to think about what its options are and where it could go. I'll throw out five ideas. Um, not to say that any of these are perfect, um, but just to put some thoughts on the table. And one is that the WTO could clearly give up on being the primary forum for trade liberalization and negotiations and put much more serious effort into becoming the hub at the center of trade transparency and dispute settlement. Um, it could work for changes that would permit the WTO's dispute settlement mechanism to adjudicate regional trade agreement disputes. It could be the ultimate repository for all trade-related documents, knowledge, research, and forums for debate of all trade issues. It could figure out a way to really incorporate um, a lot of what's going on within the regional trade agreements within the WTO and make it still at the hub or the center of the many, many spokes of regional trade agreements that are going on. It could even, my second thing would be, to work to become a serious forum for the multilateralization of these regional trade agreements. I mean, one of the many problems that Craig really didn't touch on of the regional trade agreements is they all have very different rules. I mean, this is the ultimate spaghetti bowl that Jagdish Bhagwati has always talked about, um, where you have different rules of origin, you have different provisions across many of these regional trade agreements. 
Multilateralizing those is a very, very difficult and fairly technical exercise. Where does the greatest expertise reside to deal with technical trade issues? It's at the WTO, um, which has an extraordinarily competent staff that could do this work. It would not be easy. But if the members are serious about trying to keep the WTO at the center, at the hub, it would be involved in empowering the WTO to work to multilateralize the trade agreements, come up with common rules of origin, come up with common customs procedures, come up with common valuation techniques, so that at least the agreements work with each other and not against one another. I would say if all else fails on this, um, you can use the mechanisms that are already in place to make decisions on key issues. The WTO has, unbeknownst to many people, Articles 11 and, uh, I'm sorry, 9 and 10 of the WTO agreements have in place a mechanism to make decisions and to make decisions by voting, um, by a majority vote for most of the decisions and a by three-quarters vote um, for a number of the others. They've never been used, never. Um, the perception is we cannot move away from consensus decision-making. But if the WTO is in crisis and is stymied, um, why not at least consider going to the rules that are already on the books, that have already agreed upon um, in order to make decisions? It's at least something that ought to be considered or debated rather than simply ignored. Um, fourth, I would say the WTO needs to remain at the cutting edge of research and ideas about trade and trade liberalization and its implications. Um, whether that's the naming and shaming of countries that raise trade barriers in the wake of the financial crisis, to active participation in the G20 meetings and other forums that raise WTO and trading issues, it needs to remain visible, out there, available, accessible, um, and not just to governments, but to the broad group of NGOs and others who are really engaged in trade. And the last thing I would say is I think the WTO needs to do more to partner with organizations that are working on those issues that most stand in the way of increased trade, particularly from developing countries, and work with organizations that are working on issues such as corruption, cu currency manipulation, and many others. If the WTO cannot get its own mandate broadened, it may need to join with these organizations that have a mandate to work on many of the new issues that are of concern, whether that's competition, whether that's investment, technology, environment, even go beyond those um, to those issues involving good governance, corruption, corporate and social responsibility, exchange rates, immigration, and more. There are plenty of organizations out there that are working on some of these peripheral issues that the WTO could do much more to partner with in order to make itself relevant and, and make trade issues relevant to each of those outer issues that are currently becoming part of the trade debate. My sense is if the WTO could do even some of these things, um, it will remain um, utterly relevant and credible and at the center of trade law and trade policy um, for many years to come. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Some excellent, excellent ideas. You've given a lot of thought to the conundrum before us. Um, our next speaker uh, is, is, is Mike Moore. He's New Zealand's ambassador to the United States. Uh, ambassador Moore is a former director general of the WTO. Uh, and in that capacity, he oversaw the launch of the Doha Round uh, and presided over several very important WTO accessions, including that of China and Taiwan. Um, and as if these roles aren't uh, compelling enough, uh, Mr. Moore is also a former prime minister of New Zealand uh, from the Labour Party. 
He also served at various times as New Zealand's trade minister, foreign minister, minister of tourism, deputy minister of finance, and minister for the America's uh. Cup. But we won't dwell on that subject today. Uh, uh, Mike Moore also, in an earlier time, worked as a meat and construction worker uh, and a printer where he became an active trade unionist. Uh, he became a social worker in a hospital for the criminally insane, an experience he claims prepared him well for a life in politics. <laughs> and Mr. Moore has held numerous appointments and board memberships and has been recipient of numerous honors from governments and academic institutions around the world. Uh, he's also a prolific author, uh, having published some 10 books. Uh, and some of these details are included in the, the full bio page that's available at the check-in, and which will also be available for downloading tomorrow. Uh, but in the interest of giving him as much time as possible to share his views with us on the topic at hand, uh, please help me welcome Ambassador Mike Moore. Right. <clears throat> well, thank you, Dan. Um, when I get those sort of introductions, I normally say I've got a great future behind me. Um, just a bit about the America's Cup. Um, <laughs> Oracle cheated. They were faster. <laughs> and they kept getting faster. Um, I'm deeply disappointed because I played the class war card up there, saying we've got to take this uh, cup off the billionaires and hand it back to the ordinary hardworking millionaires. Uh, and so we still feel that way and we'll have another go. Um, I've got a new sign in my office, uh, remember you're just the ambassador. So I've got to be a bit careful um, what I say. Uh, can I? pay tribute to Cato and the work you've done over the years and the readings I've done um, from your work over many years. Just a couple of words about New Zealand because um, uh, sometimes people are a little confused at how you have a Labour person like me being such a free trader and how we, why we think this way. Um, just a report, um, third most open economy in the world after Singapore and Hong Kong and they don't have many cows. Um, according to Heritage, in terms of economic freedom, always in the top four and five, um, a position I encourage other big countries to think about. Uh, Forbes, the easiest place to do business. Transparency International, always the first or second least corrupt country in the world. World Bank, safest place to invest money. So we get uh, the democratic capitalist concept. Uh, we get free trade. And we are naturally, instinctively, as a people, multilateralists. It's in our DNA. Uh, you'll find that small countries always seek the rule of law, will always seek international institutions to enforce it. That is our nature. And it's deep in our DNA across party boundaries, um, sometimes slightly idealistically so. Um, can I um, congratulate Craig for his book and remind him to invite me to the launch. And Jennifer, you uh, explained uh, extremely well the importance of the disputes uh, mechanism. It is the jewel in the crown. Um, what was curious in my day when people were manning the barricades against us was they were attacking the WTO for having too much power, then wanting other organisations to implement the WTO's dispute mechanism. And while they're attacking you for having too much power, they then wanted you to do the job of the ILO, do the job of a non-existent national environmental organisation and everything else. So in many ways I felt that uh, that was uh, praise indeed. It is a precious thing we have here. 
Um, nowhere else does it exist, nor has it existed in history. Um, and one of the heartbreaking, most disappointing things about the Doha round, inside that mandate is an opportunity to do more in terms of our rules and the mechanisms and the remedies available to us in disputes. It's always sort of um, uh, puzzled me that uh, a trade liberalising organisation has as its final penalty closing up trade on certain countries. Maybe we could do the opposite. We'd have a lot of fun telling you where you should take your tariffs off if we won a case. And I think it is underestimated. Um, you pick up the newspaper, you see trade war breaks out, Airbus versus Boeing. And then you read down to the next paragraph, they're going to Geneva to handle to the dispute system. The headline should read, Trade War Averted, WTO Called to the Rescue. And while they, this process takes too long and the remedies are pretty blunt, um, there is much good in it. And I'm sure the Secretary-General of the United Nations would love to have a situation where in certain trouble spots he would have all the parties agreeing to sit down and abide by the results. And given the enormous amount of uh, money involved, power involved, and national interest involved, there has never been a sniff or a rumour of bad behaviour, corruption, or whatever. So it's a, a huge tribute uh, to the quality of the people uh, that we have on our um, on the disputes uh, in the dispute system area. Um, I want to go back to first principles. Um, we should remind ourselves why we're doing all this. Uh, <clears throat> I guess most of us in this room intellectually uh, have reached uh, the conclusion uh, that free trade, free people, free movement ideas is a good thing. Um, but a world without walls is not, cannot be a world without rules, standards, values and global governance. A free market without rules, values, standards and governance is not a free market, it's a black market. And so in the name of civilization, I think people uh, who think this way have gravitated towards creating global institutions that can carry this out. And we ought to recognise, um, particularly if you're in DC, the fundamental role the United States has played in the creation of these institutions. It used to puzzle me as Director General that everywhere I went in the world, the WTO was called a capitalist American plot until I came to America. Nobody said it was an American plot in America. And um, to recognise why this happened and why wise men and women thought about this, you know, the Great Depression made more lethal, more prolonged, more deadly because of protectionism and competitive devaluations. Serious good people uh, with hope in their hearts, uh, not far from here, sat around thinking how would we construct a post-war world which is ruled uh, and managed, not ruled, but managed uh, in a more constructive way to fight back these things. And that's where the GATT and the WTO came from. And all of us, I think, um, particularly non-Americans, recognise the leadership America showed and some of the great things America has done 
for our civilization and our progress. The Marshall Plan, what a unique idea that you would um, assist the vanquished become partners in a recovery. This was a, a magnificent, gifted, generous idea. Possibly it goes back um, to Lincoln's inaugural with malice towards none and charity towards all, that you build an integrated world out of the ruins. And these are noble and good things. And the simple concept of FMN, a, a, a gifted, brilliant, principled idea that has done so much for us over the last 50 years. And uh, any analysis of uh, economic performance, uh, things that matter, human rights, um, health issues, literacy, life expectancy, um, they've all gone up at a rapid pace in the last 50 years. And the freer, the more open the economy, the better the result has been. And there are those out there who say governments don't matter anymore because of globalisation. Well, if governments don't matter anymore, explain the difference um, between the Argentine and Chile. If governments don't matter anymore, tell me about Belarus as opposed to Latvia. And if governments don't matter anymore, compare Cuba and Costa Rica. Governments do matter. And um, uh, their capacity to do bad uh, has been reduced, but they do matter. So here I am, a multilateralist, um, deep uh, in my psyche, brought up about speeches and papers on the League of Nations, for heaven's sake, um, deep in the New Zealand psyche and DNA is this proposition. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to be careful what I say. I've managed um, not to be newsworthy on the WTA for a decade. Um, why has Doha stalled? Well, there's enough blame for everyone. Um, but here's a grubby little secret. The Uruguay round was never concluded. We called a halt to it, and then we told countries these difficult issues we'll keep working on. Textiles, agriculture. Isn't it amazing that all the difficult issues we said we keep working on were the issues of the greatest concern, the poorest countries on the planet who need this system the most? And they were very reluctant. And that's why one of the reasons we failed at in Seattle saying, why should we adopt all these new issues when our old issues have not been addressed? How dare you ask us to take on more obligations when what you're doing about sugar, what you're doing about cotton, what you're doing on tariff escalation on coffee is hurting my country so much? How can I accept competition? I don't even have a competition authority. Now, I've got sympathy for them, for this position. However, the case is trade facilitation and intellectual property is not a cost to you. As a developing country, this is something you should embrace for your own good. You're arguing against investment, I would say to them, and you're leaving this meeting to go to New York and Tokyo to try and raise some money. More than anyone, you now need these rules because they make us equal. And I think underestimated in all of this, and this is what some work some of the younger people in the room can do, is the, 
just not the economic good of these rules and standards we're driving up, uh, uh, just not the commercial good, but the good governance issues of elbowing out crony capitalists, phony capitalists, corrupt bureaucrats, politicians of the worst kind who are always attracted to these kind of controls. And I would see the case as a governance issue um, of driving out the bad guys, letting in the air into political systems and governments around the world. That's why, and I may have made a mistake here, was part of the reason I was so enthusiastic about getting new members to the WTO, that their accession in itself was an expression of openness, that having to go through these hoops to get into it meant they had to live up to certain standards. So this is a good thing. Unfortunately, uh, in the Doha round, and there was a lot in it, uh, there's not enough gas in the tank. Um, the studies driven up show that we can hardly attract the attention of the Chamber of Commerce now. There's not enough in it. So the question then becomes, how do you put more gas in the tank, make it more relevant to the modern, modern world? I mean, look at the Fortune 500 now, as opposed to the Fortune 500 when we launched. How do we make it more relevant? At the same time, maintaining the confidence of some of the developing countries who feel, again, they're going to be elbowed out of the way. Now, I think they're wrong. I would argue that investment rules, competition rules, um, government procurement rules, uh, trade facilitation are overwhelming their, in their interest. But bluntly, this is all some of them feel they have got to attract attention. So it becomes um, a matter of political skill. And it is true, um, as Jennifer and Dan have expressed, that the global economy has changed so much since Doha. I mean, don't forget we joined China after Doha in parallel, not before. We're not completely stupid. But here is China now. And the battles that in my time were north-south are now south-south in many ways. Nobody in the developing countries is particularly worried about your textile industry. What they are worried about is other um, developing countries' competition. So the political skill in all this is finding enough in it for everyone and doing it at a pace that works. Now, how do we get more gas in the tank? Um, I'll come to that later. So here I am, having written very good articles, I might say, in the Wall Street Journal elsewhere, opposing regionalism and bilateralism, um, assisting my government to do a regional deal of some importance. My country. We had very few. We only had one free trade arrangement 30 years ago. It was with Australia. How hard is that? Um, and we resisted it intellectually and politically. Then we realised we were being left out when we saw other countries doing free trade arrangements. So trade diversion, we all know about, we know in theory, but in practice, uh, we are now quite promiscuous. We'll do it with anyone. Um, but we'll do these trade deals at a, a certain high level. ASEAN, done. Um, the first developed country to do a deal with China, Hong Kong and as we say, Chinese Taipei, first developed country, and they are of high standard. But everyone will claim the credit for TPP, but it began um, with two little countries, Australia and New Zealand, 
and um, Singapore just to test a few things. It's expanding and expanding. Now you know uh, we've got 40% of the world's economy involved. Look at the numbers. Look at the countries. Japan. Vietnam. Vietnam's a very important country. 90 million people, young. They are seeing TPP as they saw the accession to the WTO as an outside influence to drive up internal reforms. They are deadly serious. Economy in transition. Malaysia. Liberal, Islamic country. Many difficulties in implementing some of this stuff. Who would have thought 10 years ago they would be at the forefront of this? We had, I went to the ITC with the Malaysian ambassador and uh, showing solidarity and also the Malaysians and ourselves um, are pretty close mates. Um, so I sort of sit in there and give my friend a bit of encouragement. An ITC member turned to the Malaysian ambassador and said, how can we be sure you can do these things? Because a decade ago you said you couldn't and wouldn't. The ambassador had a great reply. He said, well, 10 years ago I was the Minister of Finance and I stopped it. Now I think it's ripe. Now I think we're ready to go rock and roll. Singapore, always smart, always ahead of the curve. Um, Brunei, Australia, New Zealand, Chile, Peru. Mexico, United States, Canada. This is a, this is how can we do this when the complexity and configuration of the members is almost as complex as the configuration of the WTO? Well, I like to think we're true believers of that we're impatient. We've seen the wheels spin. We understand the growth in our region. A new millionaire in China every was 150 millionaires every day, and new millionaires in China every day, something like that. We get it, um, but here's the thing: um, I think tomorrow uh, there'll be a group assembling in Bali. Um, there'll be days and days of stuff. We've had 19 uh, rounds. Uh, we're arguing for our leaders said at APEC comprehensive, elimination of all tariffs. We're taking people at their word. In our group, we're arguing for no exclusions. Elimination of all. And we're prepared to look and work on some very difficult new issues um, that are extremely complex. Data flows, which could be one of the triggers as services was in a previous negotiation. Why we were able to do services some time ago? I think because there were no ministries of services and there were no bureaucrats or people who felt threatened by it who could stop you domestically. Because um, here's a, a little word to young people who think they want a future in trade. The toughest negotiations aren't between each other. They're domestic, right? So we look then at important stuff of how you drive up a rules on an SOEs. Very important in Vietnam. Very complex in Singapore. 
extremely complex in Brunei where we have to be careful. Um, our family got most of it, let's face it. Um, and also complex in Malaysia where they have domestic policies to assist indigenous people. So this is not as easy as it looks. And we've had, I think, 20 negotiating rounds. Now, to get to these new issues, and um, which are in everybody's interest, um, we also have to pass the old issues. And the old issues remain. And the question is, are people in America prepared to take on some very difficult issues too? It's not always the other guy. Um, and what are these old issues? Um, mainly agriculture. Here's America, the world's greatest agricultural exporter, the world's greatest manufacturing exporter, the world's greatest service exporter, driven by people who understand that 95% of the world's consumers live outside the United States, that 80% of the world's purchasing power resides outside the United States and will continue to grow. Can you face these new issues as well? If I go around the, the region, what does Vietnam need? It needs some stuff on textiles. There is a shoe factory in a certain state. Can you get up on these ones? And in return, what do you want from that? Also, the definition of catfish wouldn't be unbecoming of a great country to change the definition of catfish. Um, so you've got those old issues, and Vietnam then has to accept some very difficult issues as they move in transition. Um, can it be done? Well, um, we believe it can be. Um, Japan is a member. Um, Japan has enormously difficult and complex issues. But here's a country that's flatlining for a generation. Uh, Prime Minister Abbey has said some uh, very uh, welcoming things. Uh, there's a new negotiating structure in Japan, uh, unlike other negotiating structures. And people are looking at some very serious product areas. I don't want to give anything away, um, but it's enormously hard for Japan to look at some sectors of agriculture, for Japan to look at the post office and some insurance-type issues, um, for America look at some auto issues and be real careful on that one because they'll come in from Malaysia if you haven't got it right from the same company. So we are focusing uh, very hard on this um, and we're, you know, we're not the only ones. Um, all the ambassadors and ministers rate Michael Froman highly. I believe uh, Michael Froman wants to do a deal, wants to get it through and um, uh, it's a huge lift. Um, but if we had another three years, we'd be exactly where we are now. That is the nature of things. And so um, we hope that in the negotiations there will, of course, uh, be transitional times, phase-in times, sequencing times. But it would be, be enormously disappointing not to do that with the objective of having a certain point where there's elimination of all, where there's no exemptions. And here's the problems with exemptions. 
you take one out and the house of cards starts to crumble. Um, uh, and you can, you can just see how, how it could work. Um, for us, New Zealand, a major issue is dairy um, um, and wine, but we make more money out of super yachts than we do out of wine, by the way. Um, um, uh, but if I could just talk a little about the American dairy industry, um, you're getting four times more growth in the emerging markets than we are. Your dairy industry is fantastic. Um, you're up against 250% tariffs in Canada, up against, I know I'm sounding like Billy, Billy Goat Gruff here, wait for the bigger one, um, but 600% tariffs in Japan. Your dairy industry will do extremely well out of this deal. Um, the problem with your dairy industry, of course, is that you've got farms of 10,000, 15,000 cows in California. In other parts of the country, you've got a couple of hippies with 200 cows who think they should make the same living. Um, but that's something for you to navigate and negotiate uh, through domestically. So maybe just my powers of rationalisation, um, but I would like to think that if we can get this TPP right, there are a number of elements and chapters that we've talked about that could assist to put more gas in the Doha tank. By the way, it's easy to say let's abolish the Doha round. Don't do it. Keep the badge. Keep the label. It has credibility amongst many members. Uh, and just put more gas in the tank. And all the time, uh, think of the poorest who are outside looking in, who are the consumers uh, of the future. Uh, and they need the system uh, more than any of us, although frequently they don't see it that way. So there it is. Um, uh, we, we shall see, and we shall see very soon um, when people start turning their cards over. Um, yeah, that, anyway, I'll probably, hopefully I'm not newsworthy. I've tried not to be for the last three years. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Ambassador. If I just may ask, right at the end there, you you alluded to TPP as being a potential filling station to put more gas into the tank for Doha. Can you give a, a couple of examples of how TPP is going to help push Doha or pull Doha over the finish line or help bolster the WTO? Okay, well, take, for example, the old issues. If uh, the United States and Japan and Canada... Uh, can show to the world they're prepared to deal with some of the older issues. Of course, here we're talking um, rice, sugar, those kind of issues. That will send an electrifying message back to Geneva uh, that you are prepared to face these issues, if you're prepared to face textiles. Then, of course, um, the new economy needs all sorts of new stuff on IP, on um, data flows, uh, on those areas of regulatory coherence where we can save so much money and get rid of so much red tape and avoid so much corruption. All those things uh, will send a message uh, that if, you can, if we can do it with this configuration, which is um, almost a cross-section, um, no, we don't have a least developed country uh, of the WTO, things can begin to happen, I would hope. Um, mind you, don't bank on it, um, but I would like to think it would help. So new versus old, we want them both, don't we? But for heaven's sake, um, do not expect 
as some of the economies in transition in developing countries to take huge political hits when we're not prepared to ourselves as developed countries. Shame on us. Um, let, let me see if uh, any of the panelists wants to respond to anything else that was said. Greg? Government procurement, for example. You know, what a good governance issue that is. What a good fiscal issue that is. Um, uh, doing more in that area would be of great. You know, I would could go to the poorest country in the world and explain this is not a capitalist plot. And this has got all, at all levels, this is good for your economy and society. But please don't have somebody then um, say, oh, we can do it, but we can't do states or big, or big city governments. I mean, I think as it turns out, taxpayers and domestic consumers and domestic consuming industries are the big beneficiaries of yeah. these. Well, the consumer is anyway. always the silent guy in this whole thing, right. isn't it? You know. Um, Let me uh, see if there are any questions uh, from the audience uh, or any of the panelists. Uh, back there, the last row. Please uh, state your name and, and get to your question and address one of the panelists, please. Thank you. Uh, Jim Burr from Washington Trade Daily. And I know you don't want to make news, Mr. Ambassador, but... Uh, I can't really to hear you. Is, is, that, is the mic on? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jim Burr of Washington Trade Daily. Uh, Mr. Ambassador... Well, I, I knew you were here, Jim. I wouldn't have said that. <laughs> Just couldn't oh. hear me, right? <laughs> We've been battling for years. He always prints what I say, not what I mean. <laughs> I just have a question on the last point you met. Uh, uh, you're, you stated about TPP being uh, maybe uh, boosting uh, the Doha round. Mm. Um, it seems to me that there's there's a big difference there. And TPP is supposed to be uh, uh, everyone on a single uh, uh, platform, so to speak. And those, but the Doha round is based on special and differential treatment uh, with uh, developing countries. Uh, versus industrial countries. Um, I, I, don't, I don't see the connection. How can... Uh... Oh, bec um, look, this is not a formal New Zealand position. We have an analyzer say, oh, if we're cunning here, we can do that there. But it seems to me that um, there could be a great convergence of a number of regional deals in the future. And Jennifer alluded to how you could handle that inside the WTO. Members would pick and choose which issues they felt they could do, but um, special and differential treatment um, need not be, no, we can't do it. It can be, yes, given we get this capacity building, given we get that time. And I think one of the huge weaknesses of the WTO uh, in my day was you couldn't get capacity building up uh, until you'd finished a round. You know, and if you could go in and say to certain countries, listen, and I did actually, and to be fair, developed countries backed us up in the end with resources. You know, if, if, if Vietnam's going to do this, um, you know, which countries are prepared to help in the next five years in training people uh, and, and getting their legal systems up, their court systems up, uh, all sorts of areas. Yeah, so I'm not saying it's a blueprint, but it is a roadmap. Um, yeah. Uh, another question right here. That's me rationalising what I'm doing. Sometimes I feel a bit, um, yeah, it doesn't matter. I won't say that. That is New Zealand. <laughs> uh, Brian Berry, Washington correspondent, Europolitics. Um, 
in the TTIP talks, uh, a lot of the EU and US officials, when they're talking about their motives for it, they're saying, well, it's really a way for us to kind of set global standards. Um, but isn't it all also kind of a sneaky way because they're, you know, decided that they couldn't, they weren't able to do it by Doha. So then they're going to do this bilateral deal where no one else gets to sit at the table. And then because they're such big economies, they just hope everyone else will just adopt them as the global standard. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on their thinking about what this TTIP is about? It's to me that I better keep quiet, but um, I didn't make this point on TPP, which I should have. It's always been an expanding model. If this thing comes off um, early next year, um, we won't. We we would like to be thinking that we're talking to other countries, and we are talking to other countries. And Mr. Froman has mentioned uh, a second tranche. We are talking to other countries, but what is extremely mature in in, in Asia and the Pacific at the moment is that countries who, who are looking at it are saying, we're not ready, we're not right, we need to do some more work. And one of the fears some of us have had on this TPP all along is we could turn it into a mini APEC where every year the success is getting a new member and, and the wheels spinning and not locking something in. So, um, yeah, so there are a number of countries who are doing the forensic work at home saying if we were to join... Uh, you know, what would it mean internally? On the capacity building side of it, if I could just make this other point, um, it's not popular to talk of good things that happen in Europe, but good things have happened in Europe. And when the European expansion came on with Spain and Portugal and Ireland, uh, there was restructuring money went in from the Brussels and the capitals. You know, they, the adjustment mechanism was there. We've not had this adjustment mechanism and the WTO, we keep calling for coherence with the bank and the fund and the development banks, but we never really quite got there. Huh? Um, and there was a lack of confidence uh, by some of the players uh, that they get backed up. I think your question was about uh, the European deal. Um, is it just the big rich countries jacking it up yet again and deciding to put the rules on? Um, I hope it's more than that. By the way, some of our standards aren't wrong. I mean, frequently when we talk of TPP, we talk of an ISO 2000 deal, you know, that it should be an army of the willing, those who feel they can move to that stage and stay away till you can. Um, so anyway, I've tortured myself enough today. Uh, I think Craig and, and Jennifer each want to Okay, well, uh, bear in mind, it's a very good question that you ask. Uh, this sort of dynamic has emerged many times before. Uh, whenever there has been in the multilateral system uh, a perception on the part of the United States and the European Union or the EU's predecessor arrangements that things were being held back by the recalcitrance of developing countries or by the free riding of developing countries in the days when we didn't have a single undertaking, uh, there's always been a proposal at one point or another to do what we used to call GATT+. Plus in the 80s. And GATT plus, you could either call it GATT plus or GATT minus. It was GATT plus in the sense of doing more issues among a GATT minus group of countries so that we would have sort of a, a two-speed multilateral system. Uh, and there was uh, actually one very serious initiative to do this after the Uruguay round when, when it appeared that the United States had achieved almost all that it wanted 
in the Uruguay round, except on investment. And investment was the one issue uh, on which there was a very weak agreement produced, which is the TRIMS agreement, the Trade-Related Investment Measures Agreement. Uh, this was followed up by the multilateral investment, or multilateral agreement on investment negotiations within the OECD, yeah. which was largely a U.S.-EU negotiation, but the other OECD countries as well. And I, I think that the failure of the MAI negotiations is instructive. Uh, we often seem to think that the main problems that we have on some of these new issues uh, are in dealing with developing countries that are not like-minded uh, with the transatlantic countries. The MAI negotiations ultimately failed because we could not get agreement as between the United States and the EU and specifically between the United States and France on a number of issues. And I don't take it as a given that the TTIP negotiations ultimately will succeed. Uh, there are a number of difficult issues that we have, yeah. ranging from agriculture to culture, uh, that can potentially trip us up. But uh, but bear in mind that specifically the the country that is not at the table sometimes is the target of the negotiations, and and the elephant in the room for any negotiation these days is China, and a lot of the agenda that's being negotiated uh, in especially the TPP rather than TTIP, is, is, is trying to set a set of rules uh, that either will or will not apply to China in some configuration in the future. And whether that means negotiating at some point uh, Chinese accession to TPP, whether that means trying to multilateralize the commitments that are made in TPP uh, through some sort of, of WTO negotiation, uh, is an open question. To me, one of the most interesting dynamics in the in the TPP is that most of the other countries that participate in the TPP either have or are in the process of negotiating FTAs with China. And the United States is the major, or not the only exception to that rule. And here I think there's a, a very fundamental difference in the strategic approach of, of U.S. policymakers vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis some of their TPP partners for whom they want to have agreements with China, and they want to have agreements with the rest of the world. For the United States, the TPP is defined principally by who is not there. Uh, and ultimately, if we don't have some sort of extension of TPP-like rules to China, it's part of a process by which China progressively becomes the, the least favored nation uh, by being excluded from some of the agreements. But again, this is a, this is a fundamental disconnect between the way the U.S. negotiators and, and their counterparts deal with the negotiation. From our part of the Pacific, we'd be mortified and uh, appalled when some people see this as trying try to lock China out. For heaven's sake, it's the opposite. It's building a new platform. Um, there's another uh, set of talks going on. Uh, RCEP, which is ASEAN, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, um, India, this is an intellectual exercise at the moment, and officials um, are working. But this um, is not a bad thing. Don't hold your breath. Um, but it is not a bad thing to having officials, intellectuals, in these major capitals beginning to talk. And America's not in this group, by the way. Um, that's not to exclude America, but to, have, to get the... Um, the intellectual work being done, um, I like to think in time later for a great convergence uh, back in Geneva. But um, 
I was going to only add, I mean, you know, I think your question is an excellent one. Um, for what it's worth, I think that is part of the reason why for a long time the U.S. and the EU never engaged in these negotiations. I mean, I think the perception on this side of the Atlantic for years and years has been that the European Union would never uh, want to do a deal with the United States because of what it meant for the multilateral system, the WTO, and those countries that were left out, as you say, that it becomes in that sense sneaky. Um I think what has changed is a number of things. One, I do think there is a, at least a hope or at least an expressed hope um, by the negotiators that should TTIP result in an agreement, that there would be a mechanism or some other way by which other countries could then join it. Um, obviously, we're way too far away to figure out what that mechanism would be. Um, the second sort of two comments would be, partly on whether or not this really does present a problem for those that are not part of the TTIP really does depend on exactly what regulatory policy or what standard you're talking about. I mean, because some of these are going to be fairly mundane. I mean, the, the rule that, you know, the length of a cord on an appliance has to be one yard to be sold in the United States and one meter to be sold in the European Union. I mean, whether or not that three inches difference makes any difference to anybody other than the producers that don't want to have to be able to produce both by knowing where they're shipping ahead of time. It's not clear that that kind of a change to a standard, whether it's a meter or whether it's a yard, that standard is necessarily trade preclusive to anyone else. I mean, so to me, I think there will be a whole lot of these regulatory standards that actually won't won't have any um, distortive trade effect on others. I mean, the other part of it that gets trickier is an awful lot of what's going to get negotiated if TTIP moves forward is at some level um, a notion of, if you will, trust in one another's regulatory systems. I mean, if you think about it, if you ask the average American today, um, would you feel safe uh, taking a pharmaceutical that has been fully tested and proved to be safe and efficacious in the UK through the entire UK system or the entire German system? I think most Americans would say, yes, I, I feel safe doing that and sort of vice versa. Do you feel safe driving a car that was inspected and fully passed in the European Union and driving that same car in the United States? Most people would say yes. I'm not sure that the answer would be yes um, if you ask that same question with respect to a number of other uh, countries uh, where there is a real concern. Food will be among the very tricky issues where it's not clear whether there is the same level of trust. But my point is I'm not sure you could do um, a lot of what is intended to be done um, in the TTIP um, in a multilateral setting. So then the question becomes, once you set these standards at whatever level they get set at, um, then the question is, how does the invitation go out um, to others to join it? Um, and whether or not that is perceived as um, setting a standard intended to box everyone else out, or whether it is intended to set a standard that is actually trying to get at the safety, efficaciousness, um, and again, meet, in essence, consumer standards. If, if that's where you end up, is with standards that are really driven by what is right for the consumer, what is right to have a safe and effective and efficient standard making, then I think there will be less concern that this was done in some way to sort of sneakily box out everybody else. Okay. But Can I just give one figure? Um, yeah, just one quickly, because I know we're half an hour late and I've got to be somewhere else too. Um, one figure that stunned me, I only learnt the other day, was for every dollar Mexico exports anywhere in the world, 40 cents of that dollar is an American input. The supply chain thing has just accelerated. You know, I've been out of the game for a decade. 
uh, beyond any of our imaginations. Our trade figures are all to hell. Um, yeah. I think, anyway, jaws drop when you say that to Congress people. It kind of makes you wonder why you need to have trade negotiations at all. Why, why, why well, see, you have to engage in it, it, Well, but from Mexico's point of view, it's, it's hard for them now to do some trade arrangements because you're so, they're integrated so much with yeah. your economy, yeah. you know? All right, so I sort of failed as a moderator. I've stolen about 17 minutes extra of your time, but I, I hope you think it was well worth your time. I'll make it up to you by buying you sandwiches upstairs. Um, if there are other questions, feel free to tweet them at us. Uh, use the hashtag CatoWTO or send it to at CatoTrade. You can email me if you're Twitter-averse, dikinson at cato.org. Uh, please help me thank this panel for a very informative discussion.